Well, good morning. Hope you guys are doing well today. Good morning, Brother Scott. Hope you are doing well. Um, let's see, today's Sunday, June the 7th. Unbelievable. <laughs> the times we are living in, is it not? Oh, man. Absolutely crazy. Um, but uh, it's good to be back with you again. I've been, uh, we're in chapter number seven of uh, the book of Acts. Um, we should get through the whole thing today, hopefully. Uh, big chapter. I didn't realize there were 60 verses. Uh, and yet chapter 16, I think only has 15 verses. So, but um, earlier this week, I did record a, um, like a 15 minute um, study, just looking at, uh, I think, about three or four verses. And I was asking you guys whether or not you would rather do like a you know, if I went on every morning around nine-ish, nine o'clock, and uh, did like a 15-minute study, took a few verses per day, um, as compared to one big study on Sunday mornings. Uh, but uh, anyway, just something that I'm toying with. Maybe, you know, go through, you know, a few verses a day, Monday through Friday, and then maybe on Sunday, just put them all together for a, you know, a Sunday message or something. So I don't know. I'm thinking about that. Just, it just feels weird not being able to record every day. And I've got all these thoughts and you know how it is. Your head feels like it's uh, going to explode and you just got all this information. You feel like if you don't give it out now, you're probably going to lose it. <laughs> Cause when you go back to your, to your notes, uh, they never really look the same. Uh, matter of fact, sometimes you go back and you're thinking, man, what was I, you know, where was I going with that? And it just takes you a while to figure out where you were going. So I've been toying with the idea of maybe going live uh, uh, during the week as well. And then maybe doing, uh, connecting them all together on Sunday morning or even maybe covering fresh material on Sunday morning. I don't know. But uh, anyway, just something I've been thinking about. Any kind of feedback you guys have in regards to that? I appreciate it. Um, let's see. We are going to pick up today. <clears throat> Here we go. <clears throat> Excuse me. Of course, Stephen's speech is what it's labeled here. Um, <clears throat> I see that. Thank you, brother. Um, I hate to call it a speech. I think it was more of a sermon. <laughs> um, but uh, let's just uh, pick up in verse 27. Uh, 26, just for some context here, it kind of gets us back in, you know. Uh, and the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away and said, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Um, as you know, Stephen starts out and he points to Abraham and the promises that God makes to Abraham. Then he rolls into Joseph and the promises that God made Joseph. And now he's with Moses. And of course, he's showing the nation how God has patiently dealt with them since the very beginning. Because bear in mind, prior to Abraham, you know, God dealt with <clears throat> all men the same. But then God pulled out Abraham as a man unto himself, and God started dealing with the Hebrews 
in a different way than he dealt with the Gentiles. And if you don't understand that, you're going to be clueless um, <clears throat> in your Bible study. God made promises to the Jew uh, that has nothing to do with the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, the Gentiles were not pulled back into the equation until after the rejection of the king and the kingdom and the raising up of the Apostle Paul. Um, so it's imperative that you understand that or, or you're going to really get lost in regards to Old Testament prophecies. Um, so here he's dealing with, with Moses. And, um, and it's, he says in verse 26, And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove. You remember Moses went out, he was moving in the flesh, and he felt what he wanted to do. Those were his brothers. He wanted to liberate them, but he was moving under a burden as compared to moving under a call. You remember we talked about that. A burden and a call are two different things. Uh, Moses would not be called to do anything after another 40 years on the backside of the desert before God would supernaturally enable him to go in and talk to Pharaoh and lead these people out. So he's going back to, Bo to Moses when his deed was discovered, and they said, who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? And again, uh, this is the same thing that the nation said when Jesus was offered to them as their king. You remember in John uh, 1915, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Uh, see, Stephen is showing them that you have treated Jesus the same way you treated Moses. You know, your deliverer is being sent to you and you're rejecting it. And again, of course, Moses came to deliver them out of physical bondage. Jesus came to deliver them out of spiritual bondage. And then notice in verse 28, Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian. And you remember he went to Midian. He met his wife Sephora, his father-in-law, and he had two sons. And when 40 years were expired, there appeared unto him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. Remember, Moses' life, Moses lived to be 120 years of age, and his life is divided, Stephen at least, is dividing his life up into groups of 40. 40 times 3 is 120. So his first 40 years is his life in Pharaoh's court. His second 40 years is his life on the backside of the desert with Jethro and Zephora and his children. And then his final 40 years will be when God actually did indeed call him to go and lead the Israelites out of their bondage and their journeying through the wilderness. And of course, as we know, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. Joshua was the one that actually uh, led them into the promised land. So here we see another 40 years of Moses' life on the backside of the desert. And then we get down into verse <clears throat> 31. Um, and when Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses trembled and durst not behold. In other words, he couldn't keep looking at it. Then said the Lord unto him, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings, and I am come to deliver them. And now come 
I will send thee into Egypt. So this is the calling. You know, the first time Moses moved in the flesh, he went out and killed the Egyptian taskmaster. Master, the people are like, you know, what have we got to do with you? You know, we don't want anything to do with you. And of course, Moses, Moses fled. Um, <clears throat> and then notice he says, this Moses whom they refused saying, we who made thee a ruler and a judge, the same did God send to be a ruler and deliver by the hand of the angel, which appeared to him in the bush and brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Now notice that Stephen shows how the nation rejected the very one that God had sent to deliver them. He sent Moses um, and Moses had to fight with him. Uh, so too, they were doing the same with Jesus. And yet, just like Moses, again, Jesus came to deliver them, not out of physical bondage, but out of spiritual bondage. And notice too, that Moses and Jesus in their deliveries were accompanied by signs and wonders. And of course, we see those signs and wonders at Pentecost, which is a fulfillment of Joel chapter number two. Um, these signs and these wonders. And the more I study the scripture, the more I am, I am convinced of rightly dividing uh, these gray areas that I have struggled with for so long, I no longer struggle with. If you just rightly divide the word, if you realize what was happen, happening in Acts chapter number two was a fulfillment, just like Peter said, it was a fulfillment of Joel chapter two, verses 28 through 30, 31. And when you realize that, you realize that this was a Jewish event. It had nothing to do with Gentiles. And yet you look at the divisions in the body of Christ today, all the various denominations, it all goes back to a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of what happened at Pentecost. Uh, and out of that rises up Pentecostalism, and you can just name all the denominations that fall into that category. Out of it also rises covenant theology, that there was a switch that occurred where, you know, the promises of Israel, you know, they no longer separate Israel and the church. The church literally became Israel. Israel became the church. Covenant the theology but when you look back on it and realize this was not a Gentile event, this was a Jewish event, it had nothing to do with the Gentiles. It had nothing to do with the body of Christ. Um, it totally changes the way you begin to see scripture. And all of a sudden, the things that you've read and you've been trying to justify and you've been trying to, to make sense and make understand um, you don't have to play those games anymore. You don't have to jump through those hoops anymore. There is a difference between Israel and the church or the body of Christ. And we'll find out there's, there's more than one church. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little later. I hope you're, you're following me there. I hope that makes sense. And again, Jesus, I mean, Stephen is not just telling a story for no reason. He is showing them how God through Abraham and then how he led, how he led them through Abraham, how he led them through Joseph, how he led them through Moses. He's showing them exactly how they have behaved and how they have responded to his deliverance. Um, notice in verse 
number 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him ye shall hear. And Stephen is still referring back to Deuteronomy in chapter number 18, verse number 15, to show them that Jesus was the fulfillment. Jesus was the one that Moses was prophesying about. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 15, And the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from um, the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Moses was speaking of Jesus. You remember when Jesus came, or when John the Baptist came, they asked him point blank, are you that prophet? You see, they were looking for that prophet. Are you that prophet? And he said, no, I'm not. Okay. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of, of, of what Moses was talking about. And then in verse 38, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness, which the angel, with, with the angel, which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Okay, again, the verse is still referring to Moses, who was in, who was the church in the wilderness when they, when they as a nation had received the law. Now notice that it says Moses was in the church in the wilderness. Now, Randy White, who's someone that I, I listen to a lot, I really enjoy his teaching, at this point mentions that there is a twofold mistake often made by the use of the word church in this verse. Okay, Covenant theologians will use the word to prove that the church has always existed and that there's no separation between the nation of Israel and the body of Christ. And of course, we call that replacement theology. So they say there's no difference between the two based upon uh, Acts 7.38 here. Then dispensational theology, uh, what he refers to as the normative variety. Uh, understand most dispensationalists today are a mixture of dispensationalism and covenant theology. And that was something that happened uh, as a result of the birth of the evangelical movement, which really was a compromise between dispensationalism and covenant theology. And if you go back and study the various forms of you know, classical theology or classical dispensationalism, uh, traditional dispensationalism with progressive dispensationalism, you'll see how that compromise took place. It was a meshing, if you will, of dispensationalism and covenant theology. And that is really what makes up most dispensationalists today because <clears throat> just the very fact that they will say church was born in Acts chapter number two means that they have embraced, embraced certain aspects of covenant theology, okay? Um, because really, I refer to it, while if you were to ask them point blank, do you believe that um, that the church, if you, if you ask them point blank if they are replacement in their theology, 
they would say, no, we're not replacement in their, their, in our theology. In other words, we don't believe that, 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 that the church is now Israel. We don't believe that. But then they'll turn around and say that all of Acts chapter number two applies to the church, applies to them. And that, so, and so in essence, what they are is what I would call closet replacement theologians or a mild or passive replacement in their theology uh, because they're not separating out the promises for Israel, the fulfillment of all those promises on Pentecost. They're jamming them all, all together. So in reality, that is what I, what I refer to and Randy refers to as, as the normative variety. And it they ignore this verse by saying that it is just an assembly in the wilderness. In other words, it shouldn't, it's just an assembly. And of course, the word church is assembly, uh, ecclesia. Um, but they'll say this was just an assembly in the wilderness. It was not a church like the covenant theologians would say. And then they'll turn around and argue that Matthew chapter 16, verse number 18, when, when uh, he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, they will say that this is prophecy about the actual body of Christ or the actual church that you and I are in today. They will not make a distinction between the church of the apostles and the body of Christ. They will not make a distinction between that. Uh, they will make no distinction between Acts 2.47 when it says, Praising God and having favor with the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. They will say that right there is the body of Christ. And it's not. Why can it not be the body of Christ? Because the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the gospel was not being preached. Those people were not responding to a grace gospel. They were responding to a kingdom gospel. They were responding to a works gospel. Repent and be baptized in order for them to be a part of that kingdom church. It was not by faith. It was by repentance and baptism, which are both acts of works. So to say that they are one and the same is missing it. Also in Acts 5.11, And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. So the normative dispensationalists will say that these are all one and the same. They'll even go over into Corinthians when the Apostle Paul starts talking about addressing the church, which is at Corinth. They will not make a distinction between those churches. So in many ways, they are what I refer to as passive replacement in their theology. I mean, it's obvious that, you know, the, the Paul was preaching a different gospel than the 12. So you have to separate. Of course, they don't. Uh, the verses are obviously referring to different churches. So that's where the disagreement comes in. A while back, I, I did a study on more than one church. Um, let me see here. My computer. Boom, 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 boom. Hang with me here. I'm having a little bit of problems with internet today. Um, Um, I'm just reconnecting uh, my phone back. I just heard it. I just heard it disconnect. All right. I'm 
sure you guys are still all there. I'm just trying to make sure that I don't lose you this morning. Uh, let's see. But I'm not sure why my phone disconnects like that. But uh, anyway, I, I'm sure you're you're there. Uh, Scott, go ahead and say something. Let me know that. Uh, and I'll try to get my phone reconnected again. Um, but uh, keep going. I had uh, did a, a, ser a sermon or a study uh, several months ago on more than one church. There are actually four churches identified in the Bible. And we also run into problems when we say that they are the same. They're not. The church in the wilderness that is mentioned in Acts 7.38 is the church at, that had been called out of Egypt. That is not the church of which you and I are a part of today. Then the kingdom church. The kingdom church is that church. Uh, and again, the word church is just assembly. Uh, thank you, Scott. Uh, is, a, is an assembly. It's a gathering. Okay, And the gathering that made up the kingdom church was different than the gathering that made up the wilderness church. And it was all Jewish. The only Gentiles that were in the kingdom church was proselytes, those who had converted over to Judaism. And then you have what's called the mystery church. The mystery church was revealed through Paul and they're justified freely by grace. This is the body of Christ. Okay, again, this is four churches that are found in the Bible. Uh, the kingdom church, uh, which was under Jesus and under the teaching of the apostles, they taught the kingdom gospel, repent and be baptized, for the kingdom is at hand. And in Acts chapter number two, the kingdom is still at hand. It's being presented to the nation. If you would but do what? Repent and be baptized. And daily was added to the church. Again, that's not the body of Christ. Uh, the mystery church was revealed to Paul. Only Paul knew about the mystery church. Uh, in Colossians chapter 118, and he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Okay, Jesus is the head of the body, which is the body of Christ. Um, in Romans eleven twenty five, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened unto Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Again, different. All through this in First Timothy. You remember we talked about who was the first convert into the body of Christ. There had to have been one, and the first one that believed the grace gospel was the Apostle Paul. So if Paul was the first one into the body, what happened in Acts chapter number 2? When there was as yet no body, Paul had not been saved yet. So again, they have to be two different churches. Because in Acts chapter number 2, the mystery had not been revealed. Paul had not been converted yet. The kingdom gospel had not been preached yet. And some people will say, well, there must have been like a metamorphosis between the kingdom and the grace gospel. There wasn't. They remained distinct even to the end of the death of the apostles. And if you read the Hebrew epistles, and I remind people, why were they called the Hebrew epistles? They were called the Hebrew epistles because they were written to the Hebrews. <laughs> okay, so when we try to go in and we read, uh, we read things like, uh, 
you know, first and second Peter, and we try to find uh, the body of Christ there. When we go in and we read uh, the book of James, and we try to find the body of Christ there, guess what's going to happen? Okay, we are going to end up meshing together the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of grace. And when we do that, what are we going to end up with? We're going to end up with what Paul in Galatians called a false gospel, a gospel that is no God or that is no gospel at all. If we do that and guess what? The vast majority of people in the, in the church today, that's exactly what they do, um, which is exactly what Paul told them not to do when he spoke to the Galatians. So, you have the church in the wilderness, you have the kingdom church, and then you have the mystery church, and then in the tribulation. Understand, eventually the times of the Gentiles will end. Okay, and I believe it will end with the rapture of the church. The church will be taken out, and then God will be dealing with the nation of Israel under the law again in fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week. And men will be justified, made righteous, redeemed, based upon the kingdom gospel again, which is works. They can't take the mark of the beast, okay? Um, and I believe it will be followed by repentance and baptism, because that is the gospel that is going to be preached during the tribulation period. That is the gospel that the 144,000 are going to be preaching. In Matthew 24, and again, for years, I made the mistake of looking at Matthew chapter 24, looking in the Gospels and trying to find the church, the body of Christ. It is not there. Matthew chapter number 24 is dealing um, with the nation of Israel during the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay, And when he says, but he that shall endure to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come. He's speaking to the nation of Israel during the time of Jacob's trouble. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached, and then the end will come. And those who endure to the end, everyone that preaches a works gospel does so because they're pulling the gospel of the kingdom into the gospel of grace and they are confusing the two and they're teaching a works gospel again which paul said is no gospel at all in other words it's not good news <laughs> and then notice in verse number 39 to whom our fathers would not obey but thrust him from them in their hearts turning back again into egypt saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. He is pointing out that even after coming out of Egypt, they continued to reject the leadership of Moses, and in their hearts they were turning back to Egypt. He continually fought with them for the entire 40 years through the wilderness wanderings. They kept trying to turn back. As a result, only two of them, of the original that came out, were able to enter into the promised land, and that would be Joshua and Caleb. Um, over the age of, what was it, the age of 20, I think it was. Um, and then everybody else, the Bible says, their carcasses lay in the wilderness because they rejected, continuously rejected the leadership of Moses and Joshua. So his point is that they as a nation should not make the same mistake again 
in regards to Jesus. Okay. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. So as a result of turning their back on Moses and his leadership, what happened? They fell into idolatry. Okay. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifice by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Rimphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. The end result as a, as a consequence of them turning away from the leadership of Moses, God says, the father, their father strayed into idolatry. And Stephen is apparently referring to Amos chapter 5, verse number 25. Have ye offered unto me sacrifice and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chiun, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Again, they refused to follow the leadership of Moses. Our fathers had the tabernacle in verse 44 of witness in the wilderness as he has appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. So now Stephen is going to jump in Israel's history to King Solomon. So now he's going from what? He's going from Abraham to Joseph to Moses. And now he's jumping to King Solomon. Remember that his purpose is to indict the nation for their rejection of their Messiah in hopes of bringing them to repentance. Understand, Peter and Stephen, their message, there was three messages taught in whole. Two for Peter, one for Stephen, and each time what they wanted was the people to repent, be baptized, and accept the message. And of course, with Peter, he told them at the end of it, gave a good altar call at the end of his and says, repent and be baptized. Now with Stephen, that's not going to happen. Uh, they are going to turn on him and they're going to turn on him hard. Um, and I, I believe that Stephen saw this coming. He, he could see their faces. Any pastor, anybody that stands in front of an audience can tell when you're losing them. Um, very sinking feeling when you're losing them. And I've taught in some churches where pff, I thought I was losing them after I, I introduced my name. Um, it, it's very heartbreaking. But I believe P, uh, Stephen knew that he was losing them. Um, and so again, he's indicting them. And he's just turning up the amps here. And then notice in verse 45, which also our fathers, which came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. Now the, the thought is continuing here in that the nation, the very tabernacle that, that was in the wilderness or the, or the, or the uh, back here he says, father's witness wilderness, where's it says, He's talking about them bringing in the tabernacle witness. He says, our fathers came after brought in with Jesus, which also our fathers that came after brought in. And 
course, what's he talking about? He's talking about that tabernacle with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drove out before them. In other words, they brought it into what was to be the promised land whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. Now, this verse is interesting because the King James interprets brought in with Jesus. Now, all the other translations say brought in with Joshua. Okay. Um, only the King James puts Jesus there. Um, the, same, the same thing happened in Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 8. Now, if you look in the King James, it says, For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Again, that word Jesus there is Joshua. Okay, The Greek word is a translation of the Hebrew Yeshua, and Joshua is an English translation from the Hebrew. So it is accurate, and some would even say that that if indeed Stephen did use the word Jesus, he was basically given the answers to the test beforehand because he's still pointing, not necessarily to Joshua, but he's pointing to Jesus. Okay, do you understand? Just like when he's pointing to Moses, he was talking about Jesus. When he was talking to jo about Joseph, who had to come unto them a second time and they didn't know who he is, they was talking about Jesus. So some would say that it's an accurate translation to say Jesus because he was just given the answers to the test because that's who he's talking about. But either way, um, of course, some would say that the KJV translators were tr just translating what Stephen was really trying to say in that Jesus spiritually did what Joshua did in bringing them into the promised land. So either way, there's a difference in translation between the King James and the other translations. Now notice in verse number 46, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the most high dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? In other words, this speaks of David, who had found favor with God. He desired to build God a permanent uh, dwelling place, a grand dwelling place, if you will, for the Ark of the Covenant which had dwelt in a tent in the wilderness. Uh, you remember in Psalm 132, Lord, remember David for all his afflictions, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob. Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. So David wanted to make a grand place for the Ark of the Covenant, for the, the Shekinah, the glory of God to rest. But he was denied. He was not able to do that. In First Chronicles, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly. You've made great wars. You shall not build a house unto my name because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. But, he goes on to say, your son will your son that is born to thee, who shall be a man of rest, 
I will give him rest from all of his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. In other words, <clears throat> you can't do it, but your son can do it. The question is, where is Stephen going here? What's he talking about? Because bear in mind, he's not just telling a story for a story's sake. One commentary says that Stephen is giving a type of how the Lord came to Israel the first time in the tent in a human body, but will return in a body that is much grander. It will be like the difference between the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon. Um, and of course, Peter, Second Peter mentions a little bit of this. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you into remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus hath showed me. Of course, Peter's referring to the prophecy that Jesus gave that Peter would die. But the point is that Peter made a difference between this tabernacle and that glorious tabernacle. And I'm going to, in other words, I'm going to shed this tent and I'm going to put on something that's even more glorious. So the point they're saying Stephen here is showing uh, <clears throat> that that the Lord came, that while, is, while their Messiah came to them in a human tent the first time, he is going to come a second time assuming they accept and repent their king and the gospel of the kingdom, he's going to come to them in a glorious body. And that's what Peter is, that, that Stephen is distinguishing here. Um, this commentator, I think it's Albert Barnes, who I really enjoy, <clears throat> goes on to say, and he will give then Israel the kingdom they refused the first time that he came. In other words, the kingdom that was offered. Now, I, I disagree with that because I don't think Jesus legitimately offered them the kingdom in the Gospels. He couldn't have legitimately offered them the kingdom in the Gospels until after his crucifixion. So I would disagree with the assumption that Barnes is running on there, but I understand what he's saying. This illustrates the point Stephen's been making that just like Israel wasn't freed from Egyptian bondage during Moses' first appearance, but was on his second appearance. In other words, Israel was not freed from spiritual bondage under Jesus' first appearance, but they will be freed from that spiritual bondage upon his second appearance, which of course was conditioned upon their acceptance of the gospel of, king, of the kingdom. In other words, they're going to have to repent right now, <laughs> is what Stephen is saying. And of course, at this point, Stephen began to lose them. Okay, Stephen begins to lose them at this point um, because he is saying that God did not dwell in their temple. God was not confined to their temple that had been made with hands. And he proves this by going to Isaiah 66 where it says, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, and where is the place of my rest? And in other words, he's saying God is not confined to this building that you built. He's bigger than that. In these verses, in Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2, God is basically asking, where is the place of my rest? The assumption is that if God needed a place of rest, he would not ask man to build him a place of rest. 
he would build it himself, just like he created the heavens and the universe. Now, some would say that what Stephen is saying is that God may not dwell in the temples you guys have made, but he does dwell in this man that you crucified. And we see that in Isaiah 66, 2, where he says, For all those things which hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Now, again, some will say <clears throat> that Stephen is saying, the glory of God doesn't dwell in this temple. The glory of God was in the man Jesus, whom you crucified. And, of course, P P Stephen is referencing Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. So, um, again, still, Peter, Stephen is bringing about condemnation. And then he goes on, he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised. This is where it gets pretty nasty at this point. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted, and have they slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and your murderers? And you've received the law by the dispensation of angels, and you still have not kept it. So now he flat out accuses them of being stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, in other words, you're too hard-headed to listen to the truth that I'm saying to you. And again, it's obvious that Peter saw the crowd beginning to turn on him, and he knew that the time of invitation had passed. Okay, There would be no more just as I am's. He knew it was over. No doubt, Stephen's choice of the word stiff-necked brought images of Exodus 32. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it. They have sacrificed to it and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, they are stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, <clears throat> that my wrath may wax hot against them, that I may consume them. No doubt, when, when Stephen used those words, you stiff-necked, the last time that word was used, God was going to bring judgment on the house of Israel. Exodus 33, 5, For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. You see, unlike so many in the church today, the Jews knew their Bibles. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. And I can promise you that when he used the word unstiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, they knew categorically that Stephen was pronouncing judgment upon them for their rejection of their Messiah. Um, 
Anyway, many commentators will say that Stephen's entire message was a defense. It was not a defense. It was an indictment from beginning to end. Peter was going to wrap this baby up. He was going to lay the truth out, and they were either going to accept it or they were going to reject it. And if they rejected it, if they were stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, he knew what was going to happen. Okay, He knew that God's judgment was was going to fall. Um, <clears throat> Randy White points out, Stephen was not practicing evangelism as we know it in these verses either, because there was no good news. Uh, Peter, or uh, Stephen, well, it was pure condemnation against them and their actions. And of course, just like the messages of Peter, the nation, <clears throat> had the nations repented, the kingdom would have come, but they didn't. Now I'm going to leave you with a, something you can study, something that I've been going down. What if, um, what if the, the nation had repented? What would have happened next? I believe what would have happened next is Daniel's 70th week, the rise of the Antichrist, uh, the abomination causes desolation mentioned in Daniel 9, and then it would have culminated with the second coming of Christ. But there are some rightly dividing commentators, Bible teachers, that will say, no, Daniel's 70th week was conditional. Um, in other words, it was conditioned upon whether or not they accepted or rejected the offer. I, I'm still working on that. I, I'm finding a real hard time... Uh, going with that one. I'm not sure if I'm going to go that way. I, I really think had they repented, um, Daniel's 70th week would have been ushered in, rise of the Antichrist, <clears throat> um, and then the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. Um, so, but just something, I mean, when someone says something, especially someone I respect, even though I may not on its face agree with it, I certainly do file it away and say, hmm, that's maybe something that I should look into. So anyway, um, I think I've, I've got down to the final verses where we're going to be introduced to the Apostle Paul, or who was then Saul, and we'll talk about him last time. The final you know, words there in verse 53, who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. Again, a condemnation of the nation of Israel, uh, in other words, even though God and the heavenly host gave you the law, you still have not kept it. Again, condemnation, they lost it, and we know what happens next. We're going to be introduced to Saul, who was Paul, and Stephen is going to be stoned to death as a result. Well, anyway, I hope you guys have enjoyed that. Uh, I love and appreciate you, and I appreciate any feedback that you give me. Remember, I'm going to place all this, all these things on um, you know, Facebook, SoundCloud, um, my website with the notes. So all that stuff will be there. It's on YouTube. If you haven't subscribed to YouTube, do that. I need to build up my uh, subscriber base there because uh, I never would know what's going to happen with Facebook. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I hope you guys have enjoyed the study. I love and appreciate you. And remember that God loves you, wants the best for you. He's working all things out for your good.